Well, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, thank you again for this time together. Bless our time and pray that as we look into these matters of how we got our scriptures, it would create a greater confidence in your overall providence in guarding and protecting us and giving us your word in our own language today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we start with a quiz. Because y'all been bad. So, the first question, number one. The New Testament rarely quotes from the Old Testament Apocrypha. True. True? <laughs> this is what you mean by rarely, right? Does it ever quote from the Old Testament Apocrypha? No, it actually never quotes from the Old Testament Apocrypha. So there's no quote that says, Thus says the Lord. I learned this tricky stuff from Mark Snowberger. Yeah, right. <laughs> Number two, First Maccabees is an important historical book. That's true, I just said that once, but it is considered fairly accurate history. It's, it tells about the uh, period, the intertestamental period, uh, when the Jews revolted against the Romans, against the Seleucids, I should say, the Greeks, in 167 B.C. It t- gives the history of that. And it's thought to be fairly accurate. Josephus, the Jewish historian, comments on the same period, but it's a very helpful book in knowing a little bit about the history of that period. Number three, most of the Old Testament was written in Aramaic. False. Just 268 verses or something, right? So just most of it's Hebrew. Aramaic is a very similar language, a Semitic language. What Why is there speculation of why that one book is written well, it's difficult to know. Daniel was in uh, Babylon. He was worth Aramaic. He obviously spoke Aramaic. And uh, some there's different theories about some of the sections deal with Gentile areas, and maybe it's Aramaic. A lot of different speculation, but it's not perfectly known why. Four, the Hebrew alphabet was derived from the Phoenician alphabet. That's the general accepted theory that the first alphabet generally accepted is the Phoenician. Now, there's all kinds of discoveries and talks about it, but certainly about the earliest alphabet we know was the Phoenicians. And the Phoenicians are uh, a people who lived in Phoenicia on the coast there, and they uh, traveled all around the Mediterranean. They were thought maybe to be originally from Greece, maybe, or Greek uh, in origin. They, they populated North Africa like Carthage, and, and so they were... Uh, and in fact, even now they've discovered that the Philistines are probably related to them, too. The Egyptians call them the Sea Peoples because they uh, populated various places and had boats, ships, and stuff like that. Um, and so the all the alphabets, the Greek alphabet was derived from the Phoenician alphabet, and the... Uh, the uh, Hebrew alphabet. So the first languages we know about were simply pictures. You draw a picture of a cow, there's a cow. Well, you got to have a lot of pictures. And then uh, you draw a picture of the sun, and that's the sun, but that can also mean bright or shining. Those are called logograms. And then they developed, uh, language seems to have developed into what's called syllabic or syllables where you have a character or a sign for every possible syllable, like 
BA for bat and BE for B and BI. That's a lot of syllables. And then finally, somebody genius thought about when we just have just an alphabet and that shortens the number of symbols and so forth. So it, the earliest we know is seems to be the Phoenicians. Sometime, you know, second millennium, 1500, 1600, BC, maybe, or something like that, uh, the Phoenicians. Uh, vowel points were added to the Hebrew text by the Masoretes. True. So in the 8th century AD, some Jewish scribes called the Masoretes, and we call the texts that we have or the manuscripts, most of the manuscripts are called the Masoretic texts. So the, when we read Hebrew, we get our Hebrew Bibles, we're reading manuscripts that have a certain textual affinity, and they're called the Masoretic texts because they're derived from these Masoretes. We'll see that the Hebrew text seems to have been sort of standardized and crystallized around the year 100 maybe, then vowel points were added later on to ensure about the pronunciation, how do you pronounce certain things, and so forth. We're looking at page uh, 10. We talked about the Hebrew alphabet. Let's talk about the Greek alphabet. It's also derived from the Phoenician alphabet. And uh, the number of letters has varied a little bit. There's a couple of other letters, two or three other letters that used to be in the alphabet. But by the late 5th century B.C., going through the New Testament period, you've got 24 letters in the Greek alphabet. And uh, there it is, alpha, beta, gamma, delta, epsilon. So it's very similar to the Hebrew alphabet, aleph, beth, gimel, A, B, G. A, B, G in the Greek alphabet. The Romans, as I said, they changed the order around, and they put a C in there. They put a letter C, they invented a letter C and put that in there uh, but then D, E and then, then Z, see that seems way out of order for us but that's the way the Phoenician alphabet and the Hebrew alphabet are so uh, these are the uh, this is the Greek alphabet the Romans used a lot of those letters used most of those letters but transformed some of them and uh, made them slightly different invented some new forms themselves I say here, uh, number three in, uh, I mean, number two, in contrast to the Hebrew alphabet, the Greek alphabet also contains vowel letters. So in Indo-European languages like Greek, you need the vowels because the difference between B-A-T, bat, and B-E-T, bet, and B-I-T, bit, and B-U-T, but, those, those are totally different words. Remember we said in Hebrew, most of the time, B and T, three letters of it's a triconsonantal generally idea. Three letters, they tend to have the same general meaning, and so you can actually read Hebrew. You know, there's some of those things you see, you ever see those things on the Internet where they'll put English, put those uh, words up without vowels in English and say, can you read this? You ever seen those things? on? You see them, I see them on Facebook and stuff where they'll somehow put up this quiz and say, can you read this sentence? And it has no English vowels. And you kind of finally... You kind of your brain kind of adjusts to it, and you can you can sort of make out what's happening in English, but it's hard. <laughs> it's hard, but it's not hard in Hebrew. They do it in Israel every day. Everything is written without vowels. Um. So uh, today, 
the letters look a, a somewhat like that, but this is a modern Greek New Testament. So if you picked up a Greek New Testament today, the letters would look like this. They're, uh, this so they're evolved a little bit over time, and they look like what we have here. This is not exactly, these are not exactly the same forms we have in the manuscripts. The manuscripts themselves change letters over the time, over time. Uh, then page 11 uh, writing materials so a variety of writing materials have been used in the history of writing and I don't even have all of them down here the only reason I have these is because these are the ones that we know anything that scripture was written in the first is stone we talked about this inscription last time remember it's called the Siloam inscription it's from that tunnel that goes from the Gihon Spring outside Jerusalem walls into the pool of Siloam dug by Hezekiah. Had Hezekiah, king of Israel, had that dug to supply water to Jerusalem when Jerusalem was surrounded, before it was surrounded. And there is a stone inscription. Well, we know the Ten Commandments was written on stone, but that's the only portion of the Old Testament that we know was written on stone was the Ten Commandments. There are two types of uh, writing material that Scripture was written on that we know of uh, clearly, and that's papyrus and parchment. So papyrus is a uh, apparently uh, a writing material that was developed in Egypt. Uh, quite old, uh, about 2400 B.C. at least. It's made from this reed-like plant this papyrus plant. And uh, if you look at it a little more in detail, it has a triangular shape. Uh, you can see the stalk of it is like this. And uh, the way you make uh, a writing material out of this papyrus is that you cut it in strips. You have a very sharp knife and you take and you trim off that green outer section, skin, and then you cut it in strips, thin strips. And then you produce this crosshatch pattern. You lay strips one way, side by side, you know, like this, and then you lay another section across the other way, so they're crosshatched. And this papyrus has a natural glue. You have to put water on it, and it just it has a natural gummy kind of a glue surface and you press it down between something stones heavy and over time it'll just form a kind of a paper paper the word paper comes from top hours anyway and it's 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 a, a very it produces a very nice writing material they still make it like in Egypt if you went to Egypt on a tour you probably see them in some tourist place showing you how they they make papyrus so when you look at a papyrus uh, up close, you can see this crosshatch. Can you see how uh, this part goes this way and this part goes this way? Can you see the two the two layers there? That's how that was made, and uh, it makes a very nice writing material. But it's very delicate. It's very delicate and uh, it's fragile. Um, and most of the papyrus documents that we have have been found in Egypt because you have a very dry climate 
and a lot of the stuff was buried in the sands and stuff like that. And so we'll talk about those documents later on. I'm just talking about the writing material right now. So they're made from a plant that mainly grows in Egypt. Uh, as I say here, uh, a few Old Testament manuscripts on papyrus are on papyrus. We have a few from the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls, some of them are papyrus, but most of them are parchment. Parchment, we'll see, is animal skin. So it's uh, it was a, a widely used writing material. As I say here, uh, see, most of the New Testament books were probably written on papyrus. Now here's one that's at the University of Michigan. So in the early 1900s, we'll talk about this later, the late 1800s, 1900s, Britain was in control of Egypt, and they, they, I guess they would say today they looted Egypt. They took all this stuff out of Egypt, all this stuff that's in the British museums and American museums. Americans went there, Europeans went there and gathered stuff. And the University of Michigan has a large papyrus collection, New Testament documents, a few of those, but just all kinds of other documents, just thousands of them there. This is one called P46. It dates from about the year 200, and it's it's a it's a some, some of it's at the University of Michigan. We'll see some of it's in Dublin, uh, and this is uh, the end of Romans here. This is the last line of Romans, and this says to the Hebrews right here. So on this particular manuscript, uh, this codex. Uh, Hebrews follows Romans in the order of this particular uh, book. They obviously, well, we think that means they probably thought Paul wrote Hebrews because they had Romans and Hebrews. It's by size, actually, Romans is than, than Hebrews. So uh, the uh, we think, we don't know for sure, we don't know, that we think most of the books were probably written on papyrus. It was readily available. It would be cheaper and as Paul is writing his letters, now we don't know that for sure. Luke was writing something a little more substantial. He could have used a, a parchment. We don't know that. People just, they're just speculation here. But Paul's letters especially, and the letters of the New Testament were written, they were just letters like we would write. Paul was writing to the Romans. So he probably used papyrus. That would be readily available. Um, I say there is 128 known. It's actually 140. I forgot to correct this. I do correct this later in the notes. It's hard to keep up on this because every time I talk about this, the number changes because they discover, find new little papyrus documents. There are actually fragments that are found. Nobody's found anything big in 60, 70, 80 years. That's large portions of the New Testament. But there's little fragments around and so forth. And... Uh, so um, what's happened is in recent years, especially behind the Iron Curtain, the former Iron Curtain, people have gone there. And, and so there's a lot of museums in these former Iron country, Countries where uh, people are gone and now looking at their libraries and they find these papyrus fragments that were taken out of Egypt, you know, 100 years ago and they were just behind the Iron Curtain. The communists weren't interested <laughs> so they find they find them in Greece too. They find them in all kinds of places. They found little fragments here and there, and we'll talk about some important ones here later. But 
So this number kind of grows. When I was in seminary, the number was about 78. Uh, and then it's just grown because little fragments, a little page is found, a little portion is found here. And when they did say, oh, this is part of the New Testament, we identify that and so forth. So it's about 140 now. But by the 4th century, parchment replaced papyrus as the most common writing material. So you've got about 140 uh, papyrus manuscripts of the New Testament, and the rest, 5,000, are parchment or animal skin. So the next writing material is parchment. This material is made from limed animal skins, probably used as early as papyrus, but it's more difficult to make more expensive because you've got to kill a lot of cows or sheep or different animals to make it. It's funny why that won't play. I could get it to... When I did this uh, at home, at first it wouldn't play and then... Let me escape here and see if I can make it play. We got the sound. I got to go through that. The transition from a fresh skin to a surface suitable for writing was a slow and laborious process. The parchment makers selected skins of sheep, goats, or cows. Skins were soaked in lime water for three to ten days to loosen the animal's hair. The parchment maker then scraped away the hair and any remaining flesh. After this, the skin was soaked in fresh water to remove the lime and then stretched tightly on a frame. A special rounded knife was used to scrape the hide to the desired thickness. The process of scraping continued over the course of several days. During this time, the parchment maker continually tightened the tension on the stretching frame while the skin dried. The result was parchment, a smooth and durable material that could last over a thousand years. Before parchment could be written on, it had to be specially prepared. First, the parchment was rubbed with pumice powder to roughen the surface, and then dusted with a sticky powder. These steps made the surface receptive to inks and colors. The whole finished skin was then cut down to the size of the pages needed for a particular book. A big manuscript was assembled from sheets almost as large as a single skin. For smaller books, the skin was cut into two or more pieces. The parchment sheets were folded and nested to make gatherings, usually of 16 or 20 pages. The vibrant illuminations in a medieval manuscript often overshadow the words on the page, yet the writing of the script was as important as the painting of the images. The tools of a scribe, the person who copied the text onto the page, were simple. Pens, called quills, were made from the feathers of a bird, which were soaked in water, dried, and hardened with heated sand. The scribe carved the quill to a rough point cut a slit to draw ink down, then trimmed the point to the proper width. The shape of the quill point varied with the style of the lettering being copied. Scribes made ink from a variety of materials. Gall nuts, growths found on oak trees, 
were often used to create a dark black ink. Black ink was also made by dissolving a common carbon substance. The resulting ink was called lamp black. Before the scribe began writing, he ruled the parchment using a straight edge. Medieval scribes and their patrons prized a regular and elegant script. If a scribe made an error, he would scratch it out with a penknife. Because the page was made from parchment, which was very resilient, it could stand many erasures of this type. An illuminator decorated the pages of the manuscript using paint and precious metals. He began only after a scribe had finished copying the text. The illuminator first sketched his design, then added details, such as the features of a figure or the interlacing of a decorated initial. Thin sheets of precious metals, like gold leaf, were always applied first. The illuminator put down a base coat consisting of either a plaster-like substance called gesso or a gum, as shown here. Once the gum base dried, the moisture in the illuminator's breath was enough to make the small piece of gold leaf stick to the page. Then the illuminator brushed away the excess and polished the gold leaf. After applying the gold leaf, the illuminator painted his design. Each color was made from a vegetable dye or a mineral substance ground up and dissolved in liquid. The illuminator applied the paler shades first, then the darker tones. Once the illuminator applied black outlines, and delicate white highlights to the figures and vines, the illumination was finished. After the scribes and illuminators had finished writing and decorating the parchment pages, the manuscript was bound. Groups of folded sheets of parchment, called gatherings, were sewn together with strong linen thread onto flexible supports, such as these narrow leather thongs. Next, the binder attached end bands, which secured the top and bottom ends of the pages in the spine of the book. The binder then laced the leather thongs along the spine through channels and tunnels, which had been carved into wood boards. These boards were the covers of the manuscript. The thongs could be held in place by wood pegs or iron nails. The volume was then covered, usually with leather. Without pressure from the covers to keep the leaves flat, parchment expanded and contracted with changes in temperature and humidity. Pressure was applied by the addition of clasps or straps, which held the book closed. The binding of a manuscript could be decorated with any one of a variety of materials. A manuscript might be covered with leather, stamped or tooled with gold, or covered with silks or velvets. The most elaborate bindings received sculpted decoration made from precious metals. The materials of the binding depended on the wealth of the patron, the type of manuscript, and its intended use. <clears throat> so, uh, they mentioned a couple of things in there. They mentioned that uh, the parchment could be scraped and reused. And so, we have a number of New Testament manuscripts that are exactly that. That is, uh, they're the original manuscript and something was written on top. They're called palimpsests. So I think there's about 50 of them that the, the New Testament manuscript is below. And so 
uh, something was written on top, maybe not scraped so well, not scraped so well that by using special lights they can actually look down and see what the original was and find a New Testament manuscript underneath there. So there's that kind of thing. They also mentioned the binding. <clears throat> so there's no New Testament manuscripts that we have that have any bindings left. So the bindings have all disintegrated, you know, over time. You just have the folded sheets together, you know. It's like you've had the same thing where binding your binding comes apart from your book, you know. Well, over time, obviously, that's what happened to the manuscripts, the codices that we're talking about here. So this parchment is, uh, you can see, much more expensive to make. You can make you can make a papyrus sheet pretty quickly. Uh, but this takes days and days and days and days and so forth. And some of the New Testament manuscripts we have are illuminated like that. That's called illumination. We think of illumination as something the Holy Spirit does. But <laughs> illumination is what they call putting those colors on the manuscripts. And a number of later New Testament manuscripts have that kind of illumination on them. You can imagine it's be pretty expensive to own a book like that if you, you know, to have somebody a hand illuminate that kind of thing. So we have parchment manuscripts made from animal skins. I say here, uh, B, under number three, most of the Dead Sea Scrolls are of parchment. There's a few papyrus in the Dead Sea Scrolls, but the Dead Sea Scrolls you've heard about, they're animal skins, mostly sheep skins, but other animal skins. Um, number four, uh, papyrus manuscripts were written with a reed pen. Uh, well, there's the Dead Sea um, got to show that picture. There's a parchment manuscript of the Isaiah scroll from the Dead Sea. We'll see that again later. But uh, in the video we saw the quill pen. The quill pen was made for writing on parchment. But that quill pen is too sharp for papyrus. Papyrus is very delicate. So they use this reed pen. You see the in the center there that's really a piece of uh, a, a branch. So you just take a branch and, and a hollow branch and and make a kind of a, a same kind of pin from it but it's not as sharp as the quill pen which will puncture the papyrus and she mentioned about the inks made of nut galls, those are things that grow on oak trees and they, they use lamp black which is really just carbon soot and they mix it with some chemicals and make dyes out of that now there's what about book forms there's two book forms. We talked about that before already. There's the scroll. Uh, the first books were papyrus or parchment scrolls. Luke 4.17 is mentions this. When Jesus goes to the synagogue, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it's written. So all the Old Testament books in the Dead Sea Scrolls are exactly that. They're scrolls. And the earliest books were scrolls. Until the codex was invented, that's what we're talking about here, what we saw on this video was the codex, what we have, we use what we call books today, these bound leaves that are folded over, um, probably came into existence at the end of the first century. We don't know exactly when. We do know that Christians were eager to adopt it for their scriptures. Jews did Jews kept using scrolls. In fact, if you go to a synagogue today, they have a Torah scroll that they have right there in the front and so forth. Jews didn't do that, and secular writers, secular writers still preferred the uh, scroll for a long time. 
Christians did. And there's been tremendous debate about why Christians adopted the codex form so quickly. Now, we think, well, it's obviously pretty easy to... This codex form, you can find things, you know. You don't have to roll out the scroll to find things. It seems obvious, you know, but we wonder, people wonder, well, why didn't, if it's so good, so so much of a scientific breakthrough, why didn't other uh, ancient writers and authors adopt it or publishers? And, uh, some, some say, some argue that uh, it's because the Christians wanted to distinguish their scriptures from other books that they adopted it. But whatever reason, it, it certainly... Uh, it's certainly a better tool. A codex is much more useful, and you can find things easier. Um, I see here all but five of the known New Testament manuscripts are of this type. They're the codices, codex. So there are five scrolls, New Testament manuscripts that are scrolls, rolls. The rest of the 5,000 are all codices that we have. Well, let's talk about uh, what manuscripts do we have of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Let's talk about Old Testament manuscripts. What manuscripts do we possess now? If you're going to translate the Bible, of course, translators use a printed text now, but where did that printed text come from? Uh, what manuscripts were used to make these printed texts that we use? Before the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, I say here, before 1947, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, there were no known Hebrew manuscripts older than the 9th century A.D. So remember Moses is writing about 1450 B.C., 1446, the Exodus. So he's writing 1400 B.C., and the oldest Hebrew manuscripts we had were about the 9th century. And I've listed some of them here, some of the big ones. These are codices, Jewish manuscripts written by Jews for Jews, the Cairo Codex, the Prophets, so forth. Here's the Aleppo Codex. This is one of the oldest full codices of the Bible, earliest known, originally comprising the full text of the Bible. And uh, a lot of history behind that one. Uh, Here's the Leningrad Codex down here, number E, so most Hebrew Bibles that we have that people use in seminary, they go to seminary, they get a printed Hebrew text, it's really based off this Leningrad Codex. Now all these manuscripts you see here are very similar. They're almost identical. So in the New Testament, there's more variation between manuscripts. It's not like there's great variation, but there's variation. You know, There's, there's some variation. But not in the Hebrew text. By this time, the Hebrew text is so standardized and so carefully copied that these manuscripts are very close to each other. They're just, they're just, they're all called, they're all called the Masoretic text. They're all uh, developed from that Masoretic text. Number two, I say after about AD 1100, there are about 3,000 known Hebrew manuscripts that reflect the standard Hebrew text with a little variation. Three, it's not too surprising that we have few, very few old manuscripts, especially before 1000, since normal wear and tear from constant usage would hasten the normal deterioration of common writing materials. Palestine also suffered wars, invasions, and deliberate destruction of biblical manuscripts. Jehoiakim burned the scroll dictated by Jeremiah to Baruch, remember, Jeremiah 36. 
where we talked about that Maccabean revolt in the second century, Antiochus the fourth or Epiphanes, who was the Greek Seleucid ruler, he had copies of the law destroyed, according to Josephus. But number four, I think, is the biggest reason. Another reason we have no older copies is because Jewish rabbis dispose of worn off manuscripts by burying them in a geniza, a storage chamber. So, um, one of the things the Jews did was, uh, what do you do with an old Bible? What do you do with an old Bible? <laughs> it's sitting on the shelf there, you know. It's piled up on the shelf. You gonna put it in the dumpster, or what are you gonna do with that thing? You know, I don't, you know, I don't know what you do with it. You know, well, the Jews had the same problem. So they get wore out. You make new ones. What do you do with them? They would they would put them in a storage place, a container, a geniza, a room, often attached to a synagogue. One of these was found in Egypt uh, in the last century. Well, yeah, twentieth century in Egypt, called the Cairo geniza. Had a lot of important documents out. A lot of if you look on the internet about the Cairo Genesia, you'll see that. But so, uh, so the point is, I'm saying is, is that Jews didn't keep their copies forever. Uh, they tended to uh, destroy them by putting them in the Genesia, just let them waste away. They had other means; they could actually burn them, but they had to be handled carefully. And so, uh, they tended to destroy them, get rid of them, and then make new ones. So we only had, uh, until 1947, copies that go start at about 1,000 A.D. Then in 1947, we had the discovery of the scrolls, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, We now have manuscripts going back to 250 B.C. So that's quite a jump there, what was discovered in 1947. Now this is, uh, we call them the Dead Sea Scrolls. They're also called the Qumran Scrolls. Most scholarly literature calls them the Qumran scrolls because they were discovered at a place called Qumran. That's the local name. It's an area there on the northwest corner of the Dead Sea. Now, it's I think Jericho is about 13 miles north. Jerusalem is west of that, 10 miles or so. So it's not far from Jerusalem. If you go to Jerusalem, you'll go down to the Dead Sea and uh, you'll go to Qumran. There's a, a museum-like place, a tourist place there, and so forth. So this is Qumran. Um, this uh, location was uh, uh, established by a Jewish sect, usually thought to be a group called the Essenes. In the New Testament, we have only mentioned a two primary, well, there's the Zealots, but primarily the Sadducees and the Pharisees. But there were other sects of Judaism that is, just like there's, just like it, but there's Baptists and Presbyterians and Methodists. Well, there are different ways of interpreting the Hebrew Scriptures. And the Qumran were were kind of a monastic, they're often described as a monastic community, because they seem to be mainly men, for the most part, though they found some female skeletons at Qumran buried there, but it seems to be mainly men. And they moved out in this desert region, region to isolate themselves. So it's a lot like later Christian monks who went out in places and isolated themselves, you know, alone. And so here's Qumran by the Dead Sea. And if you're, here's a picture if you're 
looking from Qumran and you're looking out towards the Dead Sea and the Jordan Valley and so forth. Here's a view uh, of the Dead Sea, the north end. So we're looking sort of, we're looking northeast here. And uh, there's Qumran down here in the corner. Here's another picture. Uh, you have the Dead Sea. This is uh, 1,300 feet below sea level. This is the lowest point on Earth, uh, 1,300 feet below. The lowest point in North America is 280, 280, 282 feet below sea level, the Dead Sea. I mean, the, uh, the uh, Death Valley. Uh, so this is the lowest point on Earth. And... Uh, the Dead Sea, and um, here's Qumran, and uh, you can see it's sort of isolated here. Now, what happens is the Dead Sea used to probably it was uh, it's, it's drying up, or well now they're now here they're trying to reclaim it. But over the years, this this is fed from the Jordan River, and over the years. Israel has diverted water from the Jordan River. Uh, Jordan has diverted water from the Jordan River, and it's so this has sort of dry, this has dried up quite a bit. And uh, but this was uh, this had uh, this was deeper in uh, New Testament times, and probably came up right to here, right to where the Qumran community lived, right to this ridge. So they were right on the water, sort of. They were just really isolated. And there was no road here going along here. This was just like a dead-end street here. They were really totally isolated. It was very hard to get to this place. Um, and uh, very, very difficult. Um, so, um, you can see kind of a picture there, and you can see maybe where the water came up to, all the way up to here probably originally. Of course, now there's a road get there probably. The water was much higher. And uh, so there is uh, Qumran. This was a community of these Jews who went out in the desert to establish a community and uh, to live by themselves. To be holy and righteous and observe the law and so forth. And they left a lot of documents. Apparently left a lot of documents in caves as we'll see. You can see there caves 1 and two, uh, we'll talk about that uh, in just a moment. Uh, here's some of the caves that we'll look at. There's Qumran, Kirbet Qumran, the Arabic name for this place. And there's caves all around this place where we believe these people, these uh, Essenes, uh, hid documents. Now, why would they be hiding documents in caves? Because the Romans came and destroyed Jerusalem in AD 70. You remember? AD 70, the Romans came and, and uh, Vespasian and Titus destroyed Jerusalem, took the Jews captive. But as they were coming down in 68, they came here first and they destroyed this place. <laughs> wiped, the, wiped Qumran off. And we think that the Jews who were living there hid their documents in the caves surrounding uh, there. That's how they got there. So, um, here is uh, Qumran, an aerial view. So, if you go there, 
It's named after, here's the Wadi Kumon, we'll show another line. Oh, what's a Wadi? So you might know what a Wadi is. Yes. What's that? <laughs> it's like a dry riverbed that fills when it rains. That's right. Yeah. They say during the rainy season, water will rush through there, and it's like a creek, a little riverbed, and so forth. There's a lot of those around there. And so these are caves here, some of the caves around here, and you can stand over here. When I was here, they didn't have those things overhead. It was hot. I mean, how much we had those But here is a tourist center. You can go in. It's very nice, and so forth. Um, so... Number two, the following make up the original seven scrolls discovered in 1947. So what happened? Well, the story is that some Bedouin boy kids were playing around here and they threw a stone into one of the caves. There's hundreds of caves around here. And it hit something. It hit a, a uh, some sort of jar, made a sound. They found inside some scrolls. And they took them to an antiquities dealer. It's a whole long story about this, how they were discovered and so forth. Uh, they came into the hands of some British uh, experts and then American experts and so forth. And they originally discovered in the caves, uh, in the first cave, these seven manuscripts. And here's that picture of that one, the Isaiah scroll, one of the most famous ones called the St. Mark's Monastery Isaiah Scroll because it was bought by them originally by a monastery there in Jerusalem area. There are some other scrolls, the Habakkuk Commentary. So these people had copies of scriptures and they had commentaries on the scripture. They wrote commentaries. The Manual of Discipline is their rule book for the community. They had rules about what they're supposed to do, how do you get in the community, uh, your initiation, the, the process you have to go through, the rules you have to obey. Very legalistic kind of community. They had uh, another Isaiah scroll. They had, they had, so they heard their own religious documents that they wrote, and they had the scriptures. Uh, so those numbers that you see there, they represent the first number one represents Cave One, what cave the documents oh. from. The Q represents Qumran, ISA, Isaiah, and A, the first Isaiah scroll found. So there's been two Isaiah scrolls, A and B, found in that cave one. I say the next paragraph, today the, uh, these seven are located in a special structure in Israel called the Shrine of the Book at the Israel Museum in Jerusalem. So if you ever go to Jerusalem, you'll go to the Israeli Museum and you'll go to a part of the museum called the Shrine of the Book. And looks like this so that what that's designed to look like is the is the uh, top of a scroll jar these scrolls were found in jars and I'll show you a picture of a jar in a moment and the top of that jar looks like that and so they made the museum like look like that and when you go inside you can see the top of the jar up there at the ceiling and Around the center, they've got the scrolls displayed, unless they're being loaned out. They're loaned out to Sweden. They're loaned out to America. They travel around the world sometimes, and you can go. They've been in this area. They've been around various areas and uh, along the sides here when they're not out there. The seven. Um, 
So the most significant of these scrolls was this St. Mark's Isaiah scroll, a complete copy of Isaiah estimated to be about a thousand years older than any other known manuscript of Isaiah, the Manual of Discipline, a handbook setting forth regulations, details about life in the community. Number three, um, a uh, official exploration of the caves in the areas of the first finds was launched in January 1949. So first of all, they were discovered by some Bedouins, some some uh, Arab uh, people looking in there, and then they started exploring them uh, in 1949. As a result of exploration through 56, over 200 caves have been found in the general area of the first cave. 25 of these contain pottery similar to found in the, in the first cave, and 11 contain strolls, scrolls or fragments of scrolls. So 11 of these caves have... Uh, have manuscripts in them, 11 of the caves that they found. So there's Qumran. Can you see in the northwest corner there? Qumran up here. Jerusalem, Jericho, Bethlehem, and so forth here. And uh, these are the caves. So here's Qumran, where where the Essenes live. And then there's caves all around here. Are caves, a lot of them, but caves where they have found scrolls or documents, manuscripts of various different kinds. Uh, most important caves are Cave One, Cave Four, where more than five thousand fragments pieced together proved to be the fragments of approximately six hundred manuscripts, one hundred and fifty of which were biblical manuscripts including all the Old Testament books except Esther. The total of the fragmentary documents discovered is about 930. The total number of the biblical manuscripts is between 206 or 213 are little less than one quarter of the 930 total. Most are written on parchment with 150 on papyrus. They generally agree with the later Hebrew manuscripts that we talked about, like the Codex Aleppo, the Leningrad Codex. So here's Cave One. You can see it up here. This picture there. Um, that's the original where the original scrolls are thought to have come from. The original seven. Um, so here's that Wadi Qumran. Um, and then there's on the left here. There's these some of the caves up here. Qumran. The, community is up here, but it's, there's some of the scrolls. I mean, some of the caves. Here's caves. Mar- uh, Mari Terraces. These, Mar- these. Here is uh, the caves. Now, it's generally said that these caves originally had more <coughs> material out here. You could walk. That is, there was a kind of a terrace. You could walk out here between the caves. It wasn't uh, just sheer like it is now. So now the only way to get up there is have a ladder or rope or something like that. Here is cave four that where they found hundreds of manuscripts. They said approximately 600 are bits. They're mostly bits and pieces, you know, manuscripts that were found there. Um, so a lot of manuscripts are found here in cave four. Um, I happened to run across a photograph that, uh, you know, Indiana Jones was once at Qumran. Did you know that? 
Yeah, I got a picture. Got a picture of him right there, <laughs> right there in front of Cape Four. There, at Guran. Here's the entrance to Cape Four. Go inside Cape Four. So there's the caves and there's the community. And here's the community. Here's the Qumran excavations. So what you see is walls that don't go up very high because they've been torn down over years. They're originally taller buildings and so forth. Here's what they think, what they call the scriptorum at Qumran. When they excavated this area right here, this area, they found they found the tables that they thought were used for writing. Uh, these were tables um, uh, that uh, benches, they found wooden benches, they found tables that were covered with kind of a plaster coating. They found ink wells uh, there. And uh, so they found materials that suggest writing was going on. So it's mostly believed by everybody that these people who live there produced the manuscripts or some of them may have been brought in. Some of them are pretty old. They're actually 250 B.C., and the community didn't start in 250 B.C. It started later. So some of the manuscripts were brought, Bibles were brought in from other areas to Qumran and so forth. Uh, here's a scroll jar, one of the scroll jars, original scroll jars, about two foot tall. That's in the museum. Here's a manuscript from Cave 11. You see the 11 Q Qumran PS Psalms, around AD 30 to 50, Psalm 101 to 150. So these were these were called the greatest find of the 20th century by many. You know, they were just a tremendous find to find these things in 1947, and uh, so they're very very helpful. They established the fact that the Jews copied their text very carefully, as we'll see. So how was the Old Testament transmitted throughout history? Let's look at that. The pre-Masoretic period, before scribes, the Masoretes came along, before 8500. I say 45, about uh, 8100 Jewish scholars had produced a standardized continental text. So that's what we talked about. There is the text, and it has no vowels in it. It just has consonants. And they have... By 8100, Jews had sort of standardized that. And uh, that's the standard we still have today and so forth. So they had pretty much established this is the standard text. There were no vowel points there. Uh, There were verse divisions, I say, during this time, but the present system was not fixed until about 8900 by the Masoretes. The numbering of verses didn't happen until the 16th century, however. in English Bibles. Number three, once the Constantinople text was fixed, that's what we have here, the Constantinople text, great pains were taken to ensure that corruptions did not creep into the text. So how did they do that? They laid down specific, specific rules about copying the text. Very carefully, the Jews did. Only clean parchment was allowed from animals, from clean animals. Each uh, written column was to have no fewer than 48, not more than 60 lines. Pages were to be lined first. So they drew lines. These letters sort of hang from the top. 
So you draw a line across the top here, and then you write from the top down. We sort of have, we think about having a line at the bottom and writing that, but they wrote from the top down. So they lined it first. Only black ink was to be used, prepared a certain way. No word or letter was to be written from memory. New copy was to be revised within 30 days of completion. Scroll was to be rejected if it had more than three errors on a single sheet. Every word and letter was counted. So there's just all kinds of rules for ensuring accuracy here by Jewish scribes. And that brings us to the Masoretic period we talked about before. The Masoretes were scribes who invented a system of vowel points. And we talked about these vowel points under the letters. So rather than changing the consonantal text, the sacred text, handed down from Moses, you know, that's what God inspired, they decided we want to preserve these pronunciation, so we'll add underneath mostly these little lines and dots and little things called vowel points to indicate how it's to be pronounced so you can pronounce it correctly and preserve uh, exactly what the word is because sometimes if you don't have the vowel point it could be a participle, it could be an adjective it could be some variation could be a different word even so this helps preserve uh, what the Masoretes felt was the true interpretation and pronunciation and so they came up with a text that looks like of course that as we talked about before with the vowel points um, in the text. Uh, in the post-Masoretic period, I, I say here, our, uh, our, our current Hebrew Bibles and translations are based on this Masoretic text. What about the post-Masoretic period after AD 1000? Jewish scholars uh, preserve this Masoretic text. Here's the Leningrad Codex. So this is just a preserved text of that Masoretic text, the vowel points added by the Masoretic. Jewish uh, Christians showed little interest in the Hebrew Old Testament during the Middle Ages. The Latin Vulgate was the Bible of the Christian Church. We'll talk about that. The Bible was translated into Latin very early, and then Latin became the dominant language in Western Europe, and so Christians were only concerned about the Latin Vulgate. The, the Roman Catholic Church eventually made the Latin Vulgate the authoritative edition, but it, it, it was, and in many ways still is, um, so Christians weren't concerned about that. The printed Hebrew Bible, the first printed Hebrew Bible was uh, entire, was in 1488 in Sassino, Italy. B here, 49. The first great rabbinic Bible was published in Venice in 1516 by a Christian printer named David Bomberg. C, the second uh, printed, second uh, rabbinic Bible was published in 1524-25, edited by Jacob ben Hayim ben Adonayu, and also published by David Daniel Bomberg. This edition became the standard edition of the Masoretic text for the next 400 years and served as the Hebrew text for all these Bibles of the 20th century. So there's no, there's no, uh, there is no real uh, controversy about the Hebrew text. When you talk about here about King James only and all these Bible translation and, well, is that the right Bible? Is this? It's all about the New Testament. There's really not much discussion of the Old Testament because this from this, this, from this Bible, 1524-25, which is just preserving that Masoretic text. So if you, if you go to seminary and you pick up this Bible here, <laughs> you'll be looking at that Masoretic text, basically, from the Leningrad Codex. So 
there's not a lot of controversy about the Hebrew text. The controversy, as we'll see when we get to it, will be about that Greek New Testament. There's some controversy there about what's the best manuscripts and so forth, and that's where the King James only and all that comes in. We better stop here. We've kind of gone over. All right. We'll see you next week.